Happy Monday and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We are joined by our good friend, Olivia Troy, uh, former member of the Trump administration, advisor to Mike Pence, uh, very much involved in the, in the COVID task force, and now with the Republican Accountability Project and Republicans for Voting Rights. Okay, so um, I wanted to start off with you, Olivia, by talking about uh, some of the things that happened over the weekend. Uh, we, we, we could dwell upon Rudy Giuliani's bizarre drunken rant on Saturday night, but that seems a little bit redundant. Although, I'm sorry, it's just, it, I, I, can't, I can't get past the fact that Rudy Giuliani was America's mayor. You know, if he would have passed away in 2002, we would have built statues to him, named schools after him. Airports would have been named after him. And 20 years later, the guy is, I want to say a joke, but more of a disgrace and an embarrassment. Oh, absolutely. I used to think and, that, actually, when I would see him walking down West Exec, coming into the yeah. White House through the West Wing. I used uh, to think, what the heck happened to you? What the heck happened to you? And I, you know, I'd have to leave this into the, the hands of, of psychologists rather than political scientists. Uh, also, uh, over the, over the weekend, uh, you had, uh, we had the former guy who had, you know, spent, uh, spent the 20th anniversary in about the most bizarre fashion possible, uh, providing commentary to a, to a boxing match, um, which was not the strangest thing that he did. He put out a video that I think he spent a little bit of time, uh, acknowledging the tragedy of, of, of 9-11 and then attacking Joe Biden. And then of course, uh, Trump did spend a few minutes in New York uh, thanking the first responders, but then, you know, felt the need to lash out at Joe Biden and then gave a apparently a speech to the Moonies, which is, again, there comes these there are certain moments that are kind of beyond parody that you have the president, the former president actually speaking to the Moonies on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. So that was that was pretty that was that was a pretty strange moment, wasn't it? Yeah, I've got to say I was disgusted. With him, I I couldn't even. I saw some of the headlines that day, but it's just hard, such a hard anniversary to begin with, and it was an anniversary that really shaped the future yeah. of my career. But I wasn't shocked, and when I saw him addressing the Moonies, I was like, "This is who you are, and you are an absolutely disgrace of a human being." And the problem with it is that I just wanted to say, like, look, he's showing his true colors again. But it doesn't matter because he does that repeatedly and he still apparently has followers that support him. So I just I don't I don't pretend to understand it anymore. Yeah, I, put, I, I put up my Sunday newsletter, which usually is just a, a bulwark mailbag, but I uh, felt the need to comment on what had happened on Saturday. And uh, we titled it uh, Despicable He uh, for for the for the for the former president uh, deciding to, to cut. And, and, and it was really remarkable, the contrast. Between the scenes at Ground Zero, where you had all of these former presidents of the United States um, who were who were there showing their respect, and and Donald Trump just you know had the opportunity to be there and chose not to be. So you saw you know President Clinton and President Obama and President Biden, and then you had uh, George W. Bush and the Vice President in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and where was where was Donald Trump? The, you know doing doing the Evander Holyfield you know, match, you know, the, the guy's what is about 80 years old and, and, and boxing in any case, um, I wanted to start off with, in case people had missed it, um, George W. Bush, uh, gave a speech in Shanksville, which was, uh, uh, I, I think notable on a number of different levels. And you, you don't have to be a supporter of George W. Bush or think that his presidency was not flawed, that he did not make mistakes, but 
he was, um, I, I thought this was a very, very powerful speech, but also a necessary speech. So let's play the first cut where he calls out the domestic extremists. And this is something that I know that you've worked on very extensively, Olivia. And I want to get your comments on the other side. This is President Bush uh, on the 20th anniversary of 9-11 in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And we have seen growing evidence that the dangers to our country can come not only across borders, but from violence that gathers within. There is little cultural overlap between violent extremists abroad and violent extremists at home. But in their disdainful pluralism, in their disregard for human life, in their determination to defile national symbols, they are children of the same foul spirit and it is our continuing duty to confront them. That was extraordinary, I thought, that he basically linked together the 9-11 terrorists with the violent insurrectionists of January 6th. Your thoughts, Olivia? Yeah, you know, it was, it was, I thought it was a very striking speech. I think that it needed, uh, honestly, I, I was grateful that he said it in such a manner that was very powerful. I think it needed to be said. And I think it also it needed to be said by someone like him, a more conservative voice calling this out saying, you know, the enemy that we really unfortunately face today, which I, I completely agree with and have been, uh, have stated previously lies within. And we are seeing this threat rise domestically here in our country. And I think that this is something that isn't going away anytime soon. And I think he was, Right to call it out. Yeah, I mean, this was the inflection point. You know, my takeaway from from the to the 20th anniversary was 20 years ago, we saw all of the threats to America coming from without. We thought that the greatest threat was Islam, radical Islamic terrorism, that it was coming from abroad, that it was coming from the Middle East. And today, you look around, what is the greatest threat to our way of life, uh, the, the American democracy? And, and it's internal. It's our own divisions. It's our own intolerance. And the the attacks on our own institutions that are coming from fellow Americans. And that's the real turning of the page. And Bush obviously has been thinking about this deeply because then he talked about the contrast between the America that he saw 20 years ago in the wake of 9-11 and the America that we have today. And he talked about the way in which we have become so divided and, you know, I, I was also glad that he that he talked about this, because what I remember so, so vividly in the days after 9-11 was this incredible sense of American unity and patriotism that really did transcend um, our partisan divides. And they were pretty intense back then. I mean, this was this was not a kumbaya moment in American politics. This came, you know, uh, the same year as the as the whole Florida recount and the very contentious presidential election. You know, it was it was uh, the potential for us tearing ourselves apart was was immense. And yet after 9-11, you did see Americans hold hands together and uh, and come together, at least at least for a brief time. And so I want to play this segment of, of his speech and get your thoughts on this on the other side, Olivia. Malign force seems at work in our common life that turns every disagreement into an argument and every argument into a clash of cultures. So much of our politics has become a naked appeal to anger, fear, and resentment. That leaves us worried about our nation and our future together. I come without explanations or solutions. 
I can only tell you what I've seen. On America's day of trial and grief, I saw millions of people instinctively grab for a neighbor's hand and rally to the cause of one another. That is the America I know. At a time when religious bigotry might have flowed freely, mm-hmm. I saw Americans reject prejudice and embrace people of Muslim faith. That is the nation I know. At a time when nativism could have stirred hatred and violence against people perceived as outsiders, I saw Americans reaffirm their welcome to immigrants and refugees. That is the nation I know. At a time when some viewed the rising generation as individualistic and decadent, I saw young people embrace an ethic of service and rise to selfless action. That is the nation I know. Hmm. And uh, predictably, a MAGA world was triggered and they're, they're dumping all over Bush. But, I, you know, when I listened to that, Olivia, uh, my, my instinctive reaction was that's what I thought I was signing up for. And I know that you probably did as well um, that, you know, for the people who say that, well, you know, Trump, Trump is just the, 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 the logical uh, conclusion of, of republicanism. He's just saying the, the quiet part out loud. No, not necessarily. And I think that you had the contrast. Uh, in the visions between these these two men, and you know, again, obviously, uh, erroneously, I thought that that this is what this is where conservatives were going back then. That this was the the movement, and the contrast between that president and what he just said, and what Republicans are prepared to embrace now, is truly extraordinary to me. Yeah, what a striking contrast today, right? I mean, when he was saying those words, I was thinking of all the ugly vitriol that I've seen on social media by some of these Republicans on the anti-Afghan refugee efforts and it was a horrible post of God, Josh Mandela out in Ohio is running right now of that plane and saying, don't bring them here. I mean, I was yeah. just like, really, because those are the Republicans that we're, we're left with today. And you're right. I certainly wasn't raised that way. I was raised in a conservative household, and I, I am a child of immigrants. My mom is a first-generation immigrant here. I am huh. a Mexican-American, and I never saw that. We were welcoming. I mean, this is this is not the party that I remembered or was, you know, raised with along the way. And you know, to hear uh, former President Bush talk about, I was thinking about his book um, that he did, the portraits of immigrants. And I was just like, what a striking contrast of here we are with this former Republican president talking about this. And we've got today a party that represents everything counter to who that man was and is still today, just based on the book that he's done and everything. And, you know, I have it on my coffee table and I reflect on it because I think about it and I think about how ugly this divisive, hateful party that exists well, today has become. So let you, you, you mentioned the Afghan refugees and, and, and you've been, uh, you, you've spoken out about all of this. Uh, look, um, I and others uh, have been very, very critical of the way the Biden administration handled the, the retreat from, from Afghanistan. But there's, there's a, there's an overriding irony here that, you know, many of the critics of our failure to get more of the Afghan, our Afghan allies out 
are also uh, very, very critical of getting the Afghan um, allies here the, as, as refugees. And you pointed out, I, I think, an important, just an important detail of all of this, that when we look at why it took so long to get those visas issued, uh, you, we do need to go back to what the policy of the Trump administration was in processing those visas and the role that the uh, the role that Stephen Miller played uh, in you know re- rejecting the idea that we had a moral obligation. So talk to me a little bit about what you saw and what you heard. What actually happened that has had such a tremendous impact right now this year on on our on on the people who who were you know were counting on us to rescue them from the Taliban. Yeah. So my my purpose for you know, I tweeted about this issue. I just wanted to remind people and give some context of sort of how we got here to the thousands of people now that are desperately trying to evacuate, uh, that were our allies on the ground. These were people, uh, some of them who had been waiting through the official process, uh, some of them for years. And uh, you know, this is a very challenging, cumbersome process to begin with. Uh, you know, no matter what some on the right may want to say that they don't get screening and vetting, this process is so extensive. I can't even tell you the number of security checks, background checks, health checks, uh, recommendations that have to happen along the way to end up being in the SIV pipeline for Afghan refugees or for P2s, which are the translators and interpreters for Iraq. And um, it was an already challenging process to begin with in terms of how the community screens these people and these applicants. But what I saw firsthand in the Trump administration was an absolute devastation of a system that was in existence, that was challenging already, but they made it even harder. And I can tell you that I live this firsthand, Charlie, because I was there. I was at the Department of Homeland Security when the executive order that is, you know, most famously known as the travel ban, uh, that executive order also um, covered a whole review of the refugee processing system. And that system came to a complete halt for a while. While we did the screening and vetting and extreme vetting, as it was referred to in the Trump administration, checks. And to be honest, when people would ask the hard questions about what is happening to this population, this population of SIVs, and this population of people who were on the ground helping our military, our intelligence officers, our diplomats, you know, even the media. Why aren't they getting through the system? Um, a lot of the time, the response would be like, well, we're doing a security review. Well, listen, I, I come from that security community. I was a member of the intelligence community working on these things. And I can tell you that that was used as the guise for getting the resources, removing people from this effort to focus on other things, you know, whether it was a border wall or whether it was lumping all of the immigration reviews together. It was very obvious to all of us who were working this that we were dealing with some very challenging obstacles and forces. And those were the likes of Stephen Miller and his allies, which he placed throughout the U.S. government, throughout these departments, and in these offices that run these efforts, specifically 
as watchdogs to figure out what was going well, on. And, and, and it's so consistent with everything else that he did and all of their other policies to keep refugees out, to demonize immigrants, to build walls, to get people frightened about the prospect of the other coming here. And yet he's he's denied this, hasn't he? He's pushed back against what you said. He has, and it's absolutely ridiculous because the day I come forward, the very I think that night he is on there talking about how he doesn't want terrorist cells across the country. He doesn't want these people here. Those are the exact talking points that he would deliver in very senior cabinet level meetings where general officers would at times have to push back and would, you know, <laughs> it's known that we would have these fights behind the scenes. And so um, it's absolutely ridiculous. And I watch him and his talking points and I watch Kevin McCarthy actually espouse the same talking points that Stephen Miller uses. And, you know, I, I actually waited for the narrative to shift that, you know, now we're going to have Afghan terrorists coming across the Southern border. Well, it's like clockwork with these people because I saw that. I saw McCarthy make reference to that. What are sure. we doing to protect the southern border? I was like, here we go. We fought this narrative at the beginning of the administra Trump administration. I was there. I remember having these conversations with Vice President Pence and his chief of staff saying, please stop saying that there are terrorists coming over the southern border. The entire intelligence community has told you repeatedly, you and the entire administration leadership, that this is factually baseless and incorrect. And it's just a vicious cycle of an administration, a group of people who were anti-immigrant, anti-refugee, and just uh, flat out <laughs> racist in many ways, to put it well. And, 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 and they've become really addicted to this playbook. Uh, you know, a couple of months ago, as the as the coronavirus pandemic was was spreading throughout uh, Texas and some of the other s southern states, you, you, you heard from uh, Governor Abbott of Texas and Governor DeSantis of Florida that it was really because of uh, the open border. It was the implication being that it was illegal immigrants who were bringing the pandemic across the border. So, so again, it was, you know, we're, we're going to downplay the pandemic, except when it comes to the possible danger of the immigrants. And it was like it was just like watching them take the, the playbook out and go. It was kind of page through caravans, pandemic, and then of course they turned the page, and and now it's we have to be afraid of we have to be afraid of you know the Afghan translators and members of their family who are coming in. But again, this contrast between the kind of appeal that and again, I understand that some of the listeners of this podcast are going to go, oh George Bush, he was the worst. He was, but really listen carefully to the distinction where George Bush said, we are not at war with all of the Muslim world. We are not blaming, you know, Muslims for this. We are a welcoming country. The contrast is so dramatic because you know that this is going to be a big issue for them because in part, because I think they can't help themselves in 2022 and 2024 who, you know, we don't want those people in our neighborhood. Those people are a threat to us. When in fact, these were the people who relied on our word for 20 years. Yep, it's, this is it, their official platform. This That's is what their, it is. This is their this is their official platform. All right, so let's talk about some other things. Now, you um, you worked in the the Trump administration up until August of 2020, right? Yes. Okay, so um, you 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 were there for a a long time and realized at some point that you did not want to be part of this anymore. There are others who stuck uh, stuck around in the in Trump world in the MAGAverse, like Chris Christie, um, who um, 
now is trying to distance himself. And uh, Amanda Carpenter has a fantastic piece in the Bulwark. I wrote my my uh, my newsletter about my imaginary conversation with uh, with, with 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 Chris Christie. Now, I, I admit I have mixed feelings about all this, but I wanted to get your take on this. Chris Christie gave the speech at the Reagan Library, where he appeared to be, um, you know, somewhat decisively ish, sort of. Uh, breaking with Trump, talking about the, you know pushing back against the crazy ideas and the conspiracy theorists. He didn't name any any names, but yesterday morning, and I'm sure you saw this, Olivia. He goes on ABC News and um, to talk about this, and he's confronted by Roland Martin. Did, 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 I want to play this exchange. It runs about two minutes, and Roland Martin is challenging Chris Christie. They'd had a discussion about, you know, Chris Christie saying the Republican Party needs to move on, needs to win elections by talking. It needs to get over the 2020 election. So, hey, credit for him for saying that the 2020 election was legit and we need to stop wallowing in, in, the, in, the, in the nutty conspiracy theories. But then Roland Martin challenges him. And, and I'm sorry to, to, to lead up to this because I know we talked about this on the podcast on Friday with uh, with Tom Nichols. And the big question that Tom and I had was, is is Chris Christie going to stick with this breaking with Trump? Or is he going to be Liz Cheney or is he going to be Nikki Haley? Nikki Haley, who, of course, you know, ventured some criticisms and then scurried back. Liz Cheney, who has <laughs> been abs- about to say the same thing. I was like, yeah. so will he stick this way yep, or yep. is it going to be the grand flip flop of all of those people? Egg, egg, exactly. <laughs> because there is some value to to, you know, somebody from inside the house saying this. But I thought this was a very revealing exchange with with Roland Martin. And I want to play this and, and his response it runs about two minutes. So here's from in case you missed it. Uh, this was from Sunday morning, um, uh, Sunday morning on ABC. I appreciate the speech, uh, Governor, but the reality is this. Um, you have to admit, Sarah, you have to admit the role that you played in putting the person in leadership who is driving conspiracy theories. It's one thing to condemn them after the fact, but you have to own up to the role that you played in putting the person in power. The time we both ran campaigns against. No, 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 no. First off, I don't one second. No, no. First off, I don't mean anything to you. Can I finish? First off, I'm not defending you. And second, I ran against Donald Trump. You also coached him. I ran against Donald Here's the deal. You ran against him. But when a person has principles, morals, and values, they do not support them, even if you lose. And what and what they say is what they say is I choose patriotism and the country over party and power. I'll and see. the problem was too many Republicans chose yeah. power in riding yeah. with Donald right. Trump as opposed to patriotism yeah. in America. I'll sleep fine tonight with you judging my morals. Well, guess what? As, <laughs> well, a, voter, as, a, as a voter yeah. who has 13 nieces right. and nephews, what I also want yeah. to see in America are Republicans and Democrats who have the guts to stand up yeah. to narcissists, to folks who lie, to folks who see the human led yeah. a country in the wrong direction. And what that and man has unleashed on this country, any Republican who stood with him has to own it and accept the role that they played. Yeah, well, that's fine. I'll accept the role that I played in the 2016 election running against him, and I'll accept but the you, role... But you him, let him, let him finish his basis. point now. Let him Excuse finish his point. And I'll accept the role that I played in my belief that Hillary Clinton was not the right person to be president. We all get to make choices, uh-huh. Roland, in this democracy. I made my choice. I'm on record of my choice, and I'm not walking away from my choice. But it does not preclude me from being able to be critical when the person that I did support does things that I am against. And so this false choice that you're trying to set up, that false? Uh, it's, it's a false choice and one that the American people are not going to buy either. It's- 
Well, I don't know. You know, I guess, Olivia, I want you to get your take on this. I was, I was a little surprised how defensive and thin-skinned he was because Christie should have expected exactly this kind of blowback, right? He had to know that people were going to remember the shine box moment where he's standing behind Donald Trump, looking adoringly at him. All of the times that he sucked up to Donald Trump and coached Donald Trump and defended and enabled Donald Trump. He had to know that was going to come up. And yet he's doing this, you know, first off, I don't have to admit anything to you. I, I guess my, my, my takeaway was, wow, it turns out the bully can't take a punch. Who knew? Yeah. And the best thing he could do is honestly, I think at this point you own it. And you say, yeah, yeah I was there. And yeah, right. you know, I regret some of the choices I made, but I'm going to do everything I can going forward to take a stand against this guy and make sure that he doesn't end up anywhere near public office ever again or someone like him in office, right? But that that's not likely what I expect him to do or what I expect to happen. What Should do you expect to happen? Look, I really believe, like, I think that if Trump remains a critical player, which it looks like he may, which is insane, but you know, all of us will come together again and do everything we can to prevent this. I I think he will fall back in line because that's what we have seen with pretty much everyone except for what Liz Cheney. Yeah, and Adam Kinzinger have, yes. have done. I'd say I see. I, I I my my mixed feelings are, and I, I laid these out in my newsletter today which is that, you know, obviously it's impossible to forget the role that uh, that Chris Christie played. In fact, when he endorsed, uh, as, I, as I said on Friday, when, when he endorsed Donald Trump uh, back in 2016, it was it was a big deal. It, it legitimized Trump in a way that that had not been done before. No other elected, you know, significant elected official had done that sort of thing. I think maybe Jeff Sessions had 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 endorsed him, but it was it was a big thing and it contributed significantly to Donald Trump's dominance of the Republican Party. But on the other hand, look, if we're ever going to you know get through all of this and turn this around and have sanity prevail, the voices are going to have to come from inside the House. It's going to have to come from people who are who have been in the, the MAGA-verse in Trump world. The problem is that the moment you say anything like this, you are expelled from the MAGA-verse, right? So I don't know that it's going to have that inside the House feel to it. The second thing is that if, if Chris Christie really did go full Chris Christie on Donald Trump, that would be a challenge that he's never faced before. You know, Donald Trump has risen to power based on, you know, the wimps and the weaklings of the Republican Party. Um, he's a bully um, who has never really con been confronted by another bully like like Chris Christie. So the question is whether or not he's willing to do that. Uh, it hasn't happened so far, but I was not encouraged by Christie's thin skinned response yesterday that he was just rolled over by Roland Martin on on that show. Yeah, I think he's testing the waters. And I think. Uh you know, I think we need to give it a little bit of time to see how he continues to behave. I will say the one moment where I actually gave Chris Christie credit, I guess it was maybe eight months ago, but time is sort of a blur to me these days, but it was back, no, it was longer than that. It was back in the fall when he did get COVID and he released that ad. Yeah. Um, there was an ad that he released and I did give him credit for that because he really came forward and said, you know, this is really serious. I was really sick and I was, you know, somewhat reckless. So please, you know, wear your mask, social distance. Like he really changed his tune when it came to that. Um, so maybe a glimmer of hope that he was willing to do that. Uh, but I do think, um, you know, 
I think all of these people uh, walk a fine line because like you said, when you speak out or you go against the poll, uh, basically Trump makes you his number one target. And when that happens, you get expelled from the MAGA yeah. universe and the people that really need to be hearing you can't go halfway, right? You can't. Out, right. So what he's got to understand is that he can't go halfway. That that he's he, he can't get caught in this no man's land. That if he's going to make the break, then he's going to have to begin, you know, naming names. He's going to have to align himself with Liz Cheney and the January sixth commission. He's going to have to say, you know, very explicitly, you no know, more things about the the twenty twenty election. He's going to have to say what you just said a little while ago that Donald Trump should never be allowed near public office uh, again. Um, I don't know that he's prepared to say that, but the the reality is is that with Donald Trump, you're either all in or you're all out, and anyone who tries to finesse this gets gets crushed. And so I don't know. So let's let's talk about the coronavirus and where we're at because you worked on this very very extensively. We are in the midst of the was it the fourth wave now? And last weekend, uh, last week Joe Biden um, reversed course and came out in favor of um, you know rather sweeping mandates for healthcare workers, for government workers, um, rules of of. And I I am not a lawyer, and I'm not going to pretend to be a lawyer. I'm guessing these will be challenged, but rules that will compel private companies to uh, to uh, to do this uh, to uh, require uh, vaccines or 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 tests. So, give me your take on where we are right now, the state of play. I think that over the weekend we also got the number that the United States is now at a 62% vaccination rate, which puts us behind almost every other industrialized country in the world. So, obviously, something's not working. You know, I think I know there there are a lot of mixed opinions on uh, the Biden administration and how they've come forward aggressively now in approaching this. But I, you, know, I come from a national security background. I watched this pandemic develop firsthand, unfortunately, from the very beginning. And I do think that when you are the president and you are the leader of this country, your job and the job of your cabinet is to protect the American people. And it comes sometimes at great cost and you get judged for it. But I think that he is doing the right thing by getting more aggressive on this because that is the only way we're going to actually curb this pandemic. And when you look at this globally, I mean, we are a free nation, a leader of the global world. And how did we get to this situation where we in, we are in such a terrible state when it comes to this COVID pandemic that we just cannot get ahead of it. Now, I know the answer to that because I was there. And the truth is you can't fight an enemy like this, like an invisible virus that, you know, doesn't discriminate on anything, your politics, uh, who you are, your age. I mean, it is an ugly virus and it's very pervasive and you have to unite together against it. And I think we're at the point where we're so past that you know, when you have people yelling at each other in school board meetings, I can't tell you how upsetting I find those scenes on, especially that one kid who was talking about his grandmother died. He said she died because somebody else didn't wear a mask and people in the crowd started laughing at him and, and, him. and, and, and mock and mocking him and jeering at him. And it's like, okay, it's one thing to have a difference of opinion, but the the cruel the cruelty and the insensitivity which has been so cultivated around this yeah. issue. I mean, you're also grown adults mocking yeah 
a younger person in such a manner when he's clearly speaking from his heart about something that's very personal to him, at least show some decorum. But that to me was the ugly side of the America that we're in today. And so look on, on COVID, we need to be doing everything we can to finally get passes because I think, you know, it's, it is affecting, it's affecting our economy. It's affecting businesses. You know, I get the questions all the time um, from my local area where I talk to a lot of even restaurant workers and stuff who are scared and they don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, they're concerned about their families and their well-being. And it's just all these layers that this virus and this pandemic has affected along the way. And I think at this point, um, when you see the hospital numbers, when you see well, the number 1600, of deaths. 1,600 deaths a day, yeah. that's, that's 9-11 every other day. You know, I mean, that would not be there right now. No, and and this is what's so breathtaking about it that we we just had this twentieth anniversary of of a moment where three thousand Americans were killed. One of the great tragedies in American history. More than three thousand Americans are dying every two days, and yet when the president of the United States says, "Hey, we need to do something more dramatic," there are people who say, "Well, this is a distraction," or he's changing the subject. Okay, so I, I and look, I you know sometimes we have to disagree with our friends. And, and they're still our friends. We disagree with them. So over at the dispatch, Jonah Goldberg, who's been a consistent supporter of the vaccines, uh, did a piece ripping Biden's speech last week. And I'm not all in on Biden's speech. OK, I, I don't I don't I'm, I'm just not sure about some of the, 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 the legalities of it. But I will say that I'm all in on requiring vaccines because I'm fed up with the unvaccinated. This is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Screw you, people. Um, you have made it difficult for everybody else. 1,600 Americans are dying every day. So Jonah writes a piece saying that Biden's speech was just intended to change the subject from Afghanistan. Let me just read this. Hard-hearted cynics might say that Biden reversed course to change the subject from the debacle in Afghanistan and his sagging poll numbers, particularly as we head into the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Well, the hard-hearted cynics are right. Okay, he concedes, though, that maybe there were reasons why the president of the United States might want to address this, might want to reverse course, the fact that thousands of Americans are dying. And he writes, I'm going to read a paragraph. I'm sure there are other motivations at play. Human beings rarely admit to themselves that cynical self-interest is their only reason for doing something. We like to gussy up our baser instincts with high-minded rationalizations. And there are plenty of such rationalizations available more than a thousand people are dying every day. The economy is sputtering in the face of the Delta variant. Getting people vaccinated is in the public interest. But his piece is that here you have that the cynics are right, that Joe Biden was trying to change the subject. I'm sorry. Um, a presidential course reversal in, in a situation like this is not a distraction. So you can you can at the same time think, Joe Biden screwed up in Afghanistan. Leave that aside for them. Yes, his poll numbers are down. But addressing something that is killing this many Americans is not a changing the subject. This is the freaking subject. You notice that I'm I'm nervous about using the F word with you, Olivia. So, so, <laughs> I'm just I'm back. Actually, I'm back on. It's good to know because I was actually yeah. watching my words carefully. <laughs> so that well, I, you, you, can, you can use it, but this 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 sort of the this is a this is a genuine crisis and i know that we use the word crisis too much but 
I'm trying to imagine somebody saying, you know, after, you know, George W. Bush, when he said, you know, um, you know, we can hear you, the, you know, the world can hear you. We're going to, you know, the people who knock down these buildings will soon hear us. Somebody writing, George Bush is just trying to change the subject from um, his sagging poll numbers. No, that's what the president should talk about in the week after 9-11. This was not changing the subject. When the president talks about what we have to do to deal with the Delta variant, he is not, quote unquote, changing the subject. He's doing his freaking job. That's so, exactly it. And it's know. pathetic to actually try to spin it in such a manner and say he's trying to distract from Afghanistan. Because no, when you look at the numbers here, when thousands of people are continuing to suffer from COVID and thousands of people are dying, it is the president's job to try everything that he can to protect them, which is not what we had the last time around, right? That's why we're in this situation to begin with, because we let this get out of control and the divisiveness of that legacy continues still today. And I, I'm going to sound very depressing, but I will tell you this. When I look at the numbers and I look at the trends of what is happening in a lot of the states in the South, and when I look at the trends in the Northern Plains states, I have, I'm still in touch with a lot of people who worked in the former COVID task force before the Biden administration. And this, these numbers and the number of deaths are going to continue to increase. And we are going to have a very hard winter if we continue the way we are. <sighs> okay. Uh, I don't, I do, I do not disagree with you. Um, but let me give you a positive little bit of a uh, little bit of news here. And, and this is, this is David Frum has been, been focusing on this. We've been told over and over again, that there's going to be this big backlash against the vaccine mandates that people are going to be quitting their jobs in droves. And the reality is, is that where these mandates have been imposed in private companies, in fact, they work. Um, the vast majority of employees affected do then sign up for to get the vaccine. And very few people are quitting their jobs. I mean, maybe here and there, I, I saw some tweet, some military, somebody in the military said he was quitting because, you know, this was part of the Marxist takeover of the military. I'm guessing he had other, you know, other issues. But, um, you know, we we are not seeing this, that that kind of, of complete meltdown. I mean, you, you're going to get a lot of media coverage to it. But I do think that the bottom line Whatever happens with these these mandates is that more people will get vaccinated and it will save more lives. And so yep. that's that is that that is a good thing. That is that is a positive thing. And I also don't think that. And, and I know that it's become very very fashionable um, among the uh, the la the lazy right to say that that Biden somehow was incoherent because he was he said something like we're protecting the vaccinated from the unvaccinated. And it's like, well, this is just neurotic because the unvaccinated, sorry, the vaccinated shouldn't worry about the unvaccinated, which is also completely not true. Yeah, because it's completely we are, false. Well, because yes, the vaccines are protective, okay? But what happens to the unvaccinated affects everybody. Hospitals fill up. If you have a heart attack or you're in a car accident, and if you can't get a bed, you are affected. You know, the spikes can shut down schools, which obviously affects the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. Raging infections are going to shut down restaurants. They're going to make it hard for people to get back to their lives. Not to mention that we do have the breakthrough infections. We have the possibility of other variants out there as this stew continues. So the notion somehow that the vaccinated should not care about the unvaccinated is, I think, a profoundly misguided and lazy take. Yeah, you know, and I, I care about the unvaccinated because I care about kids. 
and mm. I care about what happens to these kids as they develop. And I care about what potentially they'll face when they do get COVID and these variants continue to spread. And now they're the ones that are the most exposed, even when their parents are vaccinated because others aren't. And this continues to be prevalent, pervasive in our communities. I worry about, you know, the development of their organs because there's so many unknowns when it comes to this virus and how they're affected. And look, I, I know a family personally where they're, a young child has like this vest that their child has to wear now uh, because their kid has COVID heart, which Ugh. is a rare condition. And it is heartbreaking to look at a 10 year old and know that they're going to possibly deal with that the rest of their lives. And this is a family who has done every precaution possible, but I mean, COVID is real. It's still out there. Right. And you can only do your best um, and mitigate it for your own household. But that is why it's important to get vaccinated. And that is why we all have to be working together as a community. And that's why I care about getting the the unvaccinated vaccinated. So let me ask you uh, one, one, one technical question that's above my pay grade, but I see that uh, Bill uh, Crystal has been uh, tweeting about it. Uh, one of the uh, other aspects of fighting the, the pandemic, besides masks and besides vaccines, is the availability of rapid tests. And we seem to be lagging behind having home rapid tests. Is the administration being aggressive enough in making that available? Because based on what I am I'm hearing, that that is a major tool in containing the, the pandemic. So why don't we have, why aren't we awash in these home rapid tests that everybody can make sure that they are, that they're safe? So, I actually agree with Bill Crystal, um, and I, I think that unfortunately that is one of the things that the current administration has sort of focused less on is the testing and uh, also continuing to push for people to get tested because that is all part of the process of containment. And so you know you have the tool, you have the vaccine now that can protect people, um, but the testing plays a significant role in community spread and tracking the virus where it is. And so I do think that there needs to be a greater push on making sure that these rapid tests are available where people, once you you start to show symptoms, that you can get tested immediately and know so that you can take the proper steps to isolate, contain, and also uh, to get treated as early as possible um, to make sure that you, know, you, you don't get worse, especially if you're unvaccinated um, because this virus will be seen. Like no. they tell you. No, I, I I agree. Okay, so in the in the time that we have left, um, when it will switch your switch topics a little bit to the Republican Accountability Project and and the voting issue, uh, we have in 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 Texas a new voting law that, uh, that restricts um, you know twenty four hour voting, uh, re- restricts some of the uh, the ways that people can cast ballots in terms of uh, uh, well, you know the absentee ballots uh, empowers poll watchers. Uh, that law has gone into effect. Uh, first of all, give me your your take on how big an impact that will actually have. Because I have a follow up question. You know, I'm I'm upset about what is well. I'm upset about a lot of things that are happening in the state that I still call home because that's where I grew up. Um, and I'm very angry at Governor Abbott. Um, so I'll be pretty blunt about that. But I, you know, I think that you know, I don't know why. Um, 
this is such a, it's the pandemic of trying to make it harder to vote now, right? So that's the new thing um, happening now across the United States. And you know, I think it will have an impact. I mean, why are we making it harder for people? I mean, when I think about getting to the voting box or these ballot boxes or, you know, absentee voting, I, I think about my mom and I think about um, why are we making it harder for the elderly or populations where it is harder for them to get around. And so I do think in many ways that these types of bills that really, especially like the one that passed in Texas are only making it harder for anyone to vote, whether you're Republican or Democrat, independent, I just don't understand. And any falsity about it being about election integrity and the security that is proven repeatedly time and time again, that that is just factually incorrect. Well, let me just have, let me push back just a little bit and play devil's advocate because, you know, until this last year, people were not voting at 3 a.m. People did not vote with drop boxes and democracy still existed. So I'm guessing the my, my question is, and I keep coming back to this, and I've mentioned this before, you know, is is that are these bills that make it harder to vote in this particular way the real problem or is the real problem the danger of voter nullification? Okay, I'm, I'm making a distinction between the vote suppression, but also the vote nullification, because I'm seeing a growing willingness on the part of people on the right to simply throw out a, a votes if they don't have the right result. So that the greatest threat would be Republican legislators overturning the popular vote uh, in casting the electoral college votes. That strikes me as just a much greater threat than okay, some so of these. Part of the yeah, bell, yeah, yes. okay. okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> I a hundred percent agree with you that that is actually my greater concern is laying the groundwork, um, in upcoming and future elections to overturn a fair and free election and to overturn the will of the people. And we saw how close we came with uh, what happened <laughs> um, in this last cycle. And uh, I think that this is a very, very dangerous thing to be happening um, across our country because it's directly undermining of our democracy. And I think it's going to get uglier as we get closer to election time. And I think it's it's also, you know, something that keeps me up at night is uh, the threat of political violence and also the threats against election officials and what this means for people when they do take a stand. And, you know, but how do you take a stand when something that's already set to prep the groundwork saying, well, if we don't like the results, we'll just, we'll overturn them and we'll throw them yeah. out. And then you have one, you know, in some, in some states, we've seen this one lone Republican standing up and be like, Hey, no, no, this is not okay. I don't and stand for this. Have. And then their life gets threatened. Well, it is interesting. So tomorrow we have the recall election in um, in in the state of California. And the New York Times is a very interesting piece. The way in which uh, people on the right have already decided that if they don't like the result, that it's because it's stolen. And here's the new normal that that people have been sort of pre convinced to reject the result of a democratic election if their side doesn't win. And you wonder what the long-term implications of that are. Actually, I don't wonder because what it means is that we will have one political party that will just not accept the legitimacy of any democratic outcome where they don't win. And that pretty much is the end of uh, the, the, the democratic idea, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely is. That's wherein uh, democracy dies. No. 
So I, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but I, I'm, I'm noticing on, on Twitter that there's a new piece out from Lauren Windsor who's been doing these uh, you know, undercover videos. Did you, have you seen this one about Mike Pence, your, your old boss, Mike Pence? That she she goes she goes up to Mike Pence and she says she says she's a capital rioter fighting for Donald Trump, and he tells her, "I love your heart." <laughs> Are you kidding? No, no, that's what she says. I love your heart. Now, okay, I don't know Mike Pence as well as you do, but my sense is that that's kind of a version of a "bless your heart." That when somebody says something really stupid or offensive, you go, "Bless your heart." I mean, I, I think it could go either way. With I, yeah, him. I um, but I will say that um, I thought I knew Mike Pence at some point, but I have decided that I didn't. I perhaps did not know the real Mike Pence. Well, I think there's been a lot of that going around, Olivia. Man, we, we, I welcome to this club, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's it, it's it's a, it's a growing the, the club is growing in size. Olivia Troy, thank you so much for uh, joining me on the on the Bulwark podcast today. I appreciate it very much. Hey, Charlie, thanks for having me, and thank you for listening today. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow. And we'll do this all over again.